Welcome into my podcast with Blues Hall of Famer Bernie Federko. He has a new book out. It was co-written with Jeremy Rutherford, My Blues Note. And we conducted this at Hotshot Sports Bar and Grill. Many thanks to the folks out in St. Charles for their wonderful hospitality. Don't forget about all the great food and drink specials throughout every Blues and Mizzou game at Hotshot Sports Bar and Grill. This is brought to you by Hotshots, Hair Saloon for Men, Ryan Kelly, and Schnooks. Hair Saloon, their home base is in St. Louis, founded in 1997. They now have 16 locations throughout the Gateway City. I go there. I take both my boys there. You get a complimentary beverage, relaxing shampoo, hot towel at a mint, complimentary shoe shine, and you get that all for just $22. So if you're looking for the perfect haircut, think Hair Saloon for Men. I was really excited to do this podcast. Bernie's one of my best friends uh, in life. And uh, when I was a young broadcaster, I had the chance to work with Bernie. And he treated you like family and still does today. He's such a wonderful guy. His number 24 was retired in 1991. He was inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame in 2002. Over 1,000 points scored in his NHL career. Played in an even 1,000 NHL games. Uh, truly one of the great, great players ever to don that Blue Note uh, sweater. Now, he is hooked up with Jeremy Rutherford in a book that, and knowing Bernie, um, I'm not so sure that he probably wanted to do it, but wanted to do it for his family. He's a very proud family man, three boys, and then also uh, potentially for grandkids in the future to see what their granddad was all about. And this book gets into uh, so much of his life from the very beginning all the way through the Blues days and wrapping up in a culmination with the Hockey Hall of Fame. Jeremy Rutherford did a remarkable job with this with Bernie. So this will give you a little insight into what the book is about, but also insight into one of the great people here in St. Louis, and that's Bernie Federko. My first question to him was, well, why did you want to write the book? That's the best question, Danny, you could ask me. Uh, you know what? It was a publisher in Chicago that has been doing a lot of books with uh, NHL uh, alumni around the league. Uh, they've done a number of different books. So they actually came to me two years ago. They actually went came to JR, Jeremy Rutherford, and asked if uh, I would be interested in writing a book. And I kind of hummed and hawed and talked to my sons. And they said, Dad, yeah, you need to do that. So uh, it's been two years, and uh, it's done. I never thought it was worthy. And I don't know if I'm still worthy, Danny, but... They asked me to do it, and uh, it's been a difficult task, but I'm, I'm, uh, I'm very satisfied with what came out. Well, there's no doubt that you're worthy of the book. You're worthy of the Hall of Fame. You're worthy of being one of the great blues that uh, ever put on a blue sweater. I'm curious, you know, you talked about why you did the book, and some guys, they say, eh, I don't want to do a book because it's, it's tough. You know, it's a lot of self-reflection. There's, there's some tough moments in there. There's some great moments in there. Um, did you find that it was kind of cathartic doing the book and in, in talking about your own life and your family and your, and, and your journey through hockey? Yeah, you know, it's, it's really fascinating when you think back. I mean, when you have to start right from the beginning. I, mean, I don't remember a lot when I was three or four years old, but my mom was still alive when I started the book. Uh, she helped an awful lot. Uh, my brothers were there, so... Um, it, it was a, it's a matter of, I mean, you just touched on it. It's really when you start reminiscing about all the, 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 the there's good and bad in, in, in every life that, that we live. So uh, you try to kind of separate what you want to talk about and what you don't want to talk about. And I think that's maybe the beauty of an autobiography is that you can keep the things you don't want to have in there. You can keep them out. But uh, uh, it was, um, 
it was trying, but it brought back a lot of fond memories, and I really enjoyed doing a lot of the pieces in it. When you did it with Jeremy Rutherford, who's covered the blues for a number of years, was anything off limits? Did you say to JR, don't go down this road because I, I just, I don't want to talk about it? Well, we talked about a lot of things, Danny, but I mean, again, it, it comes to the point where, I mean, what can you put in a book and what you can't? I mean, I, I eliminated names. There are sure cer certain stories that I would have loved to have put in there, but that's not to be put in a book. I mean, especially not a book like this. So, um, you know, I have some fun things that, that happen in here, but there's a lot of things in here that, that uh, we could have uh, really talked for hours and hours about. And uh, JR was really good that way. So we, we kind of went through it. And then even really, had my, you know, my wife and kids helped a lot with the editing to make sure that we didn't step over the line or if we didn't, uh, we softened things a lot of different times too to make sure that we weren't too hard on some things. And we eliminated names. I mean, there's no reason uh, putting names in when it was some, a story that, that really, uh, the uh, end of the story told itself. We didn't have to put a name in there. This is the official launch, and everybody that's here, a lot of these folks are here to see Bernie Federko, the Blues Hall of Famer, but Bernie Federko with Jeremy Rutherford, my blues note. Um, it's a heavy book. That's a lot of work, Bernie. I, don't, I didn't know you to be a guy that would be writing this much. Well, maybe you haven't looked at the printing in there. Maybe the text in there is really, really <laughs> large. It'd be uh, good for my nine-year-old. <laughs> yes, yes. But really, no, it, it actually... When you get going, and actually, we thought, I mean, I think they wanted, I can't remember, JR would know more than, I don't know how many, 85,000 words. Wow. And as we started going, I mean, I thought we'd never get to there, but as, as we got closer to it, it was amazing that we actually had to stop because we could have actually went along a little further. further. Yeah, yeah. so it, it, uh, you got to draw the line at a certain time, and I was plenty, plenty glad to draw the line <laughs> when, I, I, when we got to the so many words. But, uh, uh, you know, we tried to make sure that we got everything that was kind of important in my life in there. And, of course, we, we, as I said, we, we didn't get everything, but we got most things that, that uh, we wanted to cover. Was anybody in your family against you doing the book? Did anybody say, eh, Bernie, don't, don't do it? No. No, nobody. In, in fact, uh, yeah, me. <laughs> Except, yeah, <laughs> yeah you're under the, the only five one. of us. Yeah, at the five of us, it would have been me. No, it was. It was funny. Is that, um, you know, it, it when when someone asks you to do this, I mean, you don't really think that someone's ever going to ask you to do that. And all of a sudden, when I got asked, I mean, I thought about it, and uh, you know, I, I just my life has not been that exciting to me. Uh, but as you and I talked earlier, is that it's really for my grandkids that at some point in time when I have grandkids. Uh, and beyond that, I think that there is something that, that forever that they'll have, that they'll be able to pick up something. And then if I'm not around, uh, my you know, grandkids and great-grandkids will be able to say, okay, we know something about uh, our grandfather. I want to jump around a little bit with Bernie Federko. But Bernie, um, initially, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I think I, I, you told me this when we were sitting in a hot tub in Banff, with our wives, by the way, wasn't just together. Uh, but we were sitting in, a, in, in Banff. Well, yeah, would I like to be back there right now, oh, wouldn't you? <laughs> with our wives, yes. yes let's go. <laughs> <Not> to, <laughs> but I remember you said to me, I said, you know, Bernie, when did you get involved in hockey? And you said, my mom actually started me in figure skating. Is that correct? Yeah, it's in there. Um, yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, I was really, for the most part, in town, the only boy that was of the age group that I was with. And so most of the kids uh, in, in, in town that were, you know, my age, born in 1956, were girls. Uh, so um, the, the uh, ice rink was across the street from our house, and they would have a figure skating carnival every year. And my mom thought it was a really good idea because her girlfriends all had daughters that we'd get into this uh, 
um, figure skating deal. So you know what? It was it was ice time for me. I mean, I really didn't care. I mean. If, at this day and age, I think it would have been a really good thing because I was probably with a dozen girls. I mean, that would have right. been a good number to be with, but uh, I think I was a little too crazy and stupid at that point in time. But no, because I, I do remember is that we had a carnival at the end where it was the, the, uh, the culmination of the constructions and everything was a little carnival, and we were actually milk cartons, and they were all white milk, and I was chocolate milk. And so that's what it was, and I'll never forget that as long as I live. That's unbelievable. Um, was everything with your family, and you had brothers that, that played the sport too, was everything hand-me-down? And, and was it hand-me-down in the neighborhood, in the area, or amongst the family? How did, how did that work for hockey? No, it was just in the family. I mean, okay. uh, you know, we didn't have a lot of cousins that, that were playing hockey or, or anything. So my folks would, my, my older brothers who are three years older than me, they're twins. So unfortunately for me, there was always... A hand-me-down because if one was worn out the other one wasn't and really for my entire early life I didn't have a new pair of skates or any new equipment at all until probably I was about 14 because I was got bigger than my my brothers did they were they were smaller and I, I grew quicker and uh, by the time I was about 14 then it was uh, in the situation where I was actually starting to get new stuff and you're, you're with Saskatoon as you grow older, you're getting bigger. You're turning into one of the better hockey players in the area. One of your first major coaches, you also told me this, but not in a hot tub. Um, he called you Fedorko. Yeah. yeah. You were Fedorko, and not actually, Fedorko. Yeah, and to this day, he still calls me that. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, Jackie McLeod, he was the coach of the Canadian national team before he took over coaching the junior team in Saskatoon. And for whatever reason, and even I, I think in the book I have, it might be in there with the headlines from the newspaper. It was the first time I actually played in Saskatoon. It is F-E-D-O-R-K-O. It was even spelled <laughs> because the writer was listening to Jackie McLeod, never double-checked the spelling, but he always called me Fedorico for whatever it was. Is that right? And, yeah, Jackie McLeod, when I still see him, he's still in Saskatoon when I get back. Uh, yeah, it was last time I saw him was at my mother's funeral about a year and a half ago. And he was there. He said and I, I don't know if he still calls me that, but he still does. He still says that when he's talking. So it's it's bizarre. Bobby Clark played for Saskatoon, correct? No, Flint Flon. Flint Flon okay. So, but your relationship, though, back in the day does relate to Bobby Clark. Yeah, in 1976, I broke his, his record, record. His right? record. He held the record in the Western Hockey League for That's points in a year. That's right. Uh, and I broke it that year um, uh, when I was playing for the Blades my last year of junior. Why did hockey, you know, I, I've seen some great players come through St. Louis. We saw Wayne Gretzky. We've seen guys that were, were Adam Oates, and we'll get into that in a moment. But guys that were playmakers, you were a playmaker. You set everybody up. You're one of the great players that ever played this game. Why did it come easy to you? And I, I don't like to say easy because it's not easy, but you had vision. Why do, why do certain guys have vision on the ice and others do not? Why do, why do you think that is? Yeah, you know what? I don't know, Danny. I, mean, I, I, I was blessed, I guess. It's God-given. I mean, I have a great – I mean, my peripheral vision is uh, I, I hard to explain. I mean, I can see almost behind myself right here. Right? Yeah. So I've always had that. and. Uh, you know, I always took great pride in setting up the play. I mean, when I was growing up, I mean, I, it, in the little town we were in, I was way better than everybody else. So it was really not that much of a challenge for me. I mean, I could skate through everybody pretty well and score if I wanted to. But I took great pride in 
it hit, was, didn't mean that much to score anymore. I was trying to get the guys that weren't that good around me to score. And, and I took great pride in having that happen. So I think I carried that all the way forward. And uh, when I got to Saskatoon, when I started playing for the Blades, it was the same way. Is that I felt that my job was to make the team around me better. And I always prided myself as being a passer. Yes, because I was around and involved in the play, I scored. Uh, if you're not in the scoring areas, you're never going to score. But I found myself in this scoring area, so I was going to score goals, but I still took pride in trying to pass the puck, and that's what I always did all the way through. I mean, we set up our power play from behind the net. Absolutely. The same way that Jackie, that, uh, that Wayne Gretzky set his up right. uh, when he got to Edmonton. So we had always done that in junior, and it was something that that Shaky wanted us to do, and I mean, I got very good at it, and I, you know, took it forward in the, in the pro, in pro hockey, and I always felt that that was one of the best spots to set up. Who yes. is the guy that you said, I want to be that guy? John Beliveau. Oh, Great yeah. John Beliveau, number four of the Montreal Canadiens. Yep. I wore number four my entire minor league hockey in Foam Lake. I always wore number four. Even when I played senior hockey in Foam Lake when I was 16, it was my number. Everybody knew that. I mean, even the senior team knew that I was going to wear number four, and they were all men. So I did. I wore number four, and it was the greatest I even say that too, Danny, is it was the greatest moment. You were there yep. uh, in Toronto when I got introduced on the ice at Maple Leaf Garden. Well, it was, it was unbelievable. The new, new Air Canada Centre. That's right. And it was, it was uh, Jean Beliveau that was standing uh, right to my right. And it was probably one of the great thrills that he was standing next to me when they really introduced me as a new member of the Hockey Hall of Fame. That's amazing. Uh, 24, how did that come about? It was just given to me. Uh, you know what? When I came to the Blues and I... I I got called up the first time, and we played in two games, and I really got into one game. It was in Colorado, and then we were in Vancouver uh, the next night. And I had three or four shifts in Colorado, didn't get any shifts in Vancouver. And I, you know what, and, and I mean, my mind is drawing a blank right now, but I did not wear number 24 in those first two games. Is that right? Yeah, I did not wear number 24 in those two games. And I, when I came back and got called up for the second time when I got called up in February to stay, they gave me number 24. And I have no idea why they didn't give me 24 the first time. I'm thinking they, maybe that, see, Dougie Palazzari had been called up yep, earlier in the year. And that. he was number 24 even the year before. That's right. Now, I think maybe they thought maybe he was going to get called up again, so they were going to leave that number. Now, when I did get called up the second time, I guess they figured that, Dougie Palzeri was never going to get called up again, and he never <laughs> did. And they gave me number twenty-four. So yeah, it was. I would was willing. I, I wore number fifteen in junior. Uh, I would have loved to have had twenty-four uh, when I came here, but you know, beggars can't be choosers. I was just happy to be a member of the Blues. I was just happy to be in the National Hockey League. Whatever number they would have given me, I would have been happy with. You were drafted seventh overall. Correct me if yes. I'm wrong. Yep. Uh, your impressions when you first got to St. Louis. You know, a guy from small town in Canada. St. Louis is booming at that time for the most part. Um, just your impressions of, of when you got off the plane and you arrive in St. Louis and you realize, eh, dream come true. Yeah, it was, you know, just the massive size of St. Louis. I mean, I went from a little town of 1,200 people to Saskatoon, a town of 150,000 at the time. So, I mean, it was a whole new deal for me. I mean, learning how to drive in a city uh, was major. And then all of a sudden I went from 150,000 to, what, two and a half or three million so when the first thing when I walked off, the first of all, the first thing I noticed when I when we flew in here was I couldn't believe how beautiful the color of the trees are here. I mean, I think that to this day too. Seriously, I'm serious. St. Louis has got the most pretty, lush green trees. And, and Bernie, you're from Canada. It's I, lush no, no, up no, there but, too. But, but no, we have our 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 
Our trees are so, I mean, they're dark green. I mean, the colors here that we have in St. Louis, and I, my, my family comes, they can't believe how beautiful the, the, the color is. is. Right? Yeah, it really is. So that was the first thing I noticed. The second thing I noticed was when I dropped, when I got off the plant, I couldn't believe how hot it was. <laughs> it was the first week of September, and it must have been 100% humidity because, you know, you walked outside and you were sweating. So those were the first two things I noticed. And then Emil Francis picked me up at the airport and was just, I mean, free. We didn't have a freeway in Saskatoon. I mean, we were just from highway to highway. You know, got on 70, got on King's Highway. So, I mean, it was just the massive, you know, size of the city and, yeah. and it was just what really amazed me. Emil Francis obviously was big for you. Absolutely. He still means a lot to me. I mean, yeah. uh, uh, Mr. Francis was, was the man that gave me the opportunity to play in the National Hockey League. Um uh, I'll never forget, I mean, when, he, when, when they called after I got drafted, I mean, he, he told me he had, didn't think he had any chance that I would be still there when he got to pick his number Is that seven. Right? Yeah, and he, they were all shocked. And I was actually quite shocked because I thought I was going number one uh, to Washington. Uh, at least that had been told by that my agent that, that I was going to go number one. I ended up, didn't go till seven. So uh, Mr. Francis, uh, you know, was probably and still is the most menacing person, the most respected man I have ever met in my life. He had, he's not a big man, you know, but he had that look in his eye that was all honesty. I mean, what he, what he said to you, what he looked at you, he was looking right through you, and you knew that you couldn't lie to him. <laughs> you, could, you, couldn't, you weren't going to get anything by him, and uh, he was the most honest man I had ever met, and, you know, he told me when he sent me down the first time, he said, I'd come in with a broken foot, so I had a really rotten training camp that, that first year, but he said, you go down you work. You've got a great opportunity because you're going to play for a great guy in Barkley Plager down there. And that was one of the special things that really happened to me. But he said, when you're ready, when you're healed up, and when you start playing like you can, you'll be up here. And when you come here, you'll be here for the rest of your career. And, you know, he was pretty well true until that last year. But he, you know what he said, we drafted you to score. We drafted you to be consistent. You were a consistent scorer in junior. You were a passer. You do that here in St. Louis, and you're going to be here forever. I was going to ask you about the first time he sent you down. You answered that question. Then you go play for Barkley, and the Plaguers have a lasting legacy here in St. Louis. When I mention the Plager name... Just respect him. Respect and respect for the Blue Note. I mean, they taught... I mean, no one... Uh, Bobby's the same way, but Bark had that... Um, that finger pointed all the time that do as I say and do as I do. And he was a leader by example. He was our assistant or our player coach down in Kansas City, and he protected us like we were his own kids. I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. But he taught us so much about the values of how to play the game, how to respect people around the game, outside the game, uh, what you should do in every situation that was out there. And, and uh, you know, he was, he was a mentor for all of us, and especially for me. Uh, he was like my older brother or my even my dad who was not here because I had so much respect for him and we could argue, we could yell at each other. There was never any disrespect, but it was we had that relationship that was, was so special that uh, at the end of the day, no matter how mad we were at each other, we could sit down and, and have a pleasant chat and just go to the next page the next uh, day. And uh, I, 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 I have the most utmost respect and I miss him so dearly because he meant so much to me. And, it's a, you know, they always say that good die young. Well, that was certainly a case of Barkley Plager. No question. I was told by JR that I had to ask you about your first flight exhibition play in Kansas City. And 
one of the players, I guess, orders a morning cocktail. Two of them. <laughs> Two of them. Okay, so what happened? Well, I was, as I said, I broke my foot, so I, I was not traveling with the team originally uh, when training camp, when the first preseason game started. So Derek Sanderson was also here. He had a bad back. So um, the day that the Blues were going to, they were on the road trip, and I'm not sure where they were, but we were going to meet them in Kansas City to play against Atlanta in a preseason game at Kemper because that was going to be the first year that the Blues were playing and the new the farm system, farm team was going to be in Kansas City, which I ended up. But So the morning of the game, Derek and I met at the airport. We were actually staying at the uh, quality, quality court at the time next to the arena. Uh, we got in a cab and we went to the airport, jumped on an Ozark plane, I believe it was, and two of us went and sat down in our seats and he... When the gal came, I mean, it's a 30-minute flight to Kansas City. The gal came down the aisle, the, the flight attendant, she said, can I get you something? I, I said, no, I'm fine, Turk. Yeah, I'll take a vodka and a screwdriver. In fact, I'll have two. So, I mean, it was really, I, my, my eyes almost nearly popped out because we were going to meet the team for a morning skate, and then we were pr- playing that night. But he had two screwdrivers, and the best part about it is he didn't have any money on them, so I had to pay for the cocktails, too. <laughs> of course, that's the way it goes. Great guy, though. One of the best guys of all time, Derek Sanderson. When I think of the Blues in the 1980s, there's a, you know, so many memories that come to mind. But, you know, obviously the Monday Night Miracle, it's got to be covered in the book. I haven't had the chance to read it all. I've had excerpts. But what comes to mind for you now, all these years later, of the Monday Night Miracle? Well, what comes to me is that it's a shame we lost Game 7 in Calgary because Absolutely. that was one of the most special moments. I mean, that will always be the electricity in that building that night will never be forgotten. I mean, it's amazing that that building didn't topple down because of the noise. People stood and cheered for an hour after the game because I'll never forget, you know, we, we went in after the second period trailing by three goals and, um, you know, Jacques Demers had – and Bark both. I mean, we were trying to win for Bark, too. Bark was going through his cancer treatments. Right. And uh, that was a very special time for all of us uh, because we, we knew Bark was, you know, was not doing well. But uh, we were all, I mean, we were all focused on trying to do all we could for Bark. But Jacques came in and basically said, guys, this has been a great season. Um, you know what? Who knows what's going to happen in this third period? But, you know, you guys done it all. And you know what? Just go out there and play your hearts out. Whatever happens, happens. It basically was, it, it was Saying over. the season's it, over. The season's over. Basically, that's exactly it. And you know what? It was really interesting because when all of a sudden, you know, Brian Sutter had not been playing much in the playoffs. He scored his first goal of the playoffs in that game. Uh, and then, of course, Pazzer scored a couple of goals and a couple of big mistakes by the uh, Calgary Flames, especially Vernon on that last goal when right. Pazzer was able to stuff it. And then when we went into the locker room uh, for the you know, in between the third period and the overtime, I, I don't think there was anybody in our room when you look around that we were any doubt that we were going to win that game. And sure enough, um, you know what? It's always the kiss of death. Joey Mullen, who was playing for Calgary, hit the crossbar. You know, just before we ended up turning the puck over, went down, and, and Wick scored. So, I mean, I'll never forget that. Uh, you know, fortunately, I was part of that goal. And uh, just hugging Wick, I was the first one to hug Wick. Uh, it was uh, it was really really special, but it, it was my 30th birthday too that day. Is that right? And it was really interesting because I didn't even have a cocktail the whole day of my birthday too, Dan. It was already midnight <laughs> when I finished that game. So anyway, when we went when when we walked out of the building, uh, well after midnight, it was probably closer to one o'clock. The people were still in stands, chanting and cheering and making noise. So it was, awesome. it was it was really amazing. Do you ever give Al McInnes any trouble about the Monday Night Mirror? I mean, they come back and win the series, but. Yeah. 
it's a memorable game, obviously, in Blues history. Yeah, it's fun because uh, an Al, I mean, it was really, when you watch the tape over and over, I mean, everybody was back. Everybody was chasing the puck. I mean, Absolutely. Lanny McDonald was on the ice. That's uh, right. So was Al. But they were all chasing the puck instead of, if everybody takes a man there, nothing happens. But it's, it's funny, in, in, an, in a sudden death overtime, how you panic, how you you, you want to? If, if there's going to be a mistake made, everybody wants to cover up, and instead of everybody just doing their own jobs, uh, but that's what happened. So yeah, Al knows that he was on the ice. Trust me, he's he's heard about it many times. Hi, I'm Ryan Kelly with thehomeloanexpert.com. There's never been a better time to look at a refinance. Maybe it's time to get rid of the PMI or get some cash out to pay off the credit cards. Five minutes could save you 500 bucks a month. Thehomeloanexpert.com. Enjoy the podcast. What happened on the flight home from Calgary? What what was that like after Game Seven? Well, there really was no flight after Game 7 coming home because we were supposed to have a charter that was either going to go to Montreal if we were going to win. If we'd have won, we'd have went to Montreal to start the Stanley Cup Finals. Uh, if we lost, we thought we were coming straight home. Well, there had been a big, big snowstorm in Calgary uh, the, the night prior to that, so there's lots of snow on the ground. But when we came out, Susie Matthew, uh, the great Susie Matthew, she ran all the, uh, the whole operation for, for, for the Blues. Well, the travel, everything. Susie was the jack of all trades she was the most amazing person that we we could have ever had and anyway she came to me uh, when we got back to the hotel and she said bernie um the charter is canceled uh, i don't have enough on my credit card i don't i, I don't know yeah i don't have enough money on my credit card i don't i, I can't pay for it would you mind if i use your credit card to put the guy's flights on so she actually used her flight her credit card and mine to book Three different flights because we all could get on the same. So we all flew home the next day. Some of us went through, I believe, Chicago. Some went through Minneapolis, and some went through Denver from Calgary because we Harry had canceled the uh, Harry Ornest, the great owner, oh, had yeah. canceled our charter going back to St. Louis. That's an unbelievable story. It's, it's ridiculous when you think about it. We think about today. It's charter flights oh, everywhere. It's, it's, and no uh, questions asked. No, and, and it was really very rare for us to charter in those days. And the only times we chartered was really. Was if there was back-to-back games, which and an afternoon yeah. game was the second one, or if you got to the third round of the playoffs, and that's where we were. We were in the third round, and so we. And had they char- used your credit card to come home. Yes, we did. I got my money back. I mean, they refunded my money, but yeah, that yeah. is unbelievable. You, yeah. You've been holding out on me for a while. I never heard you never that. You never knew one. that. Oh no. yeah, no, no. It was Susie and she. Yeah, it was it's, it's, unbelievable. It's priceless. Yeah, it really is priceless. Harry Ornest, Jack Quinn. You start laughing and smiling when you think of those two. Just give me what comes to mind for Bernie Federko, a guy that, you know, if there's anybody that represents the St. Louis Blues and the history of the good, the bad, the ugly, it's Bernie Federko. So I say those two names, what comes to mind? Well, not a lot of good. Not a lot of good. No, you and know you're what? rubbing your face and yeah, your eyes you know right. What? I don't. I don't. There's a lot. There's there's a there's a whole chapter on that. So I mean, uh, I don't want to. Don't give it away. I won't give it away. But no, the the uh, uh, it was called kind of a lack of respect from both Jack and, and Harry. I don't think they had any respect for any of us that played the game. Uh, I think the only respect they had was the for the green dollar back. I think sure. that's all they cared about. They didn't care about how we were treated or what we did. We didn't have pregame meals even during that time. We had to fend for ourselves, which is unheard of in, in, in the National Hockey League. But um, we used to take the earliest morning flight and have three connections sometimes because it was cheaper. We, we did all kinds of crazy things. It was all because of saving a dollar. So it was, uh, you know what, you can say what you want about Harry, I guess, because he saved the team for St. Louis because we were going to move to Saskatoon. But uh, it was some trying times for all of us. I mean, with the organization, we were, you know, not very many 
players. I mean, we really didn't have a farm system. We had three or four guys that were were loaned out all the time. So we were we were bare bones under under Harry, and I, I think Jack was <laughs> perfect for him because Jack was Jack. He he. He still probably has the first nickel that he that he had when he <laughs> when he got here to St. Louis. You were at the beginning of the Brett Hall era. Um, you're a huge part of that. Well, you could see what Brett was all about when Brett came here. I will say this: is that no one knew ex- what to expect out of Brett Hall. I mean, we of course knew he was the son of the great Bobby Hall, and Bobby Hall was one of the, still to this day one of the great guys, one of the greatest players, and one of the greatest guys that ever has sure. been in the National Hockey League. And and I think everybody expected Brett to come here and, and, and was going to be the spoiled little brat or whatever he was because he was Bobby Hall's son. And it was, you know him very well, Danny, is that he's the opposite. No, Brett yeah, came here, and you could tell right away he had that special talent of shooting the puck. Uh, I think everybody always questioned his work ethic at the time when he first came, but it was really hard to question because he really had been in the minors. He had spent very little time in Calgary, really didn't even get a chance to play. So this was really, and he still believes that this is where he made his name, obviously, because no this question. Was, his real test was right here. And uh, I think, again, when you mentioned Jack Quinn's name, I mean, Brett played with us that first year, and we saw glimpses of greatness out of Brett. But it wasn't until the year after that, when I got traded, when I went to Calgary, or to Detroit, and Adam Oates and, and Brett really hit it off. You could have hit it off with him. Well, though. I don't know. I might have been. You know, it would have been I nice to try. I know you were at the latter it, stages. I, yes, I, I would have loved to have tried. But, I mean, you can never take away the great great chemistry that, that, no question. that, that Adam and, and Brett had right off the bat. And uh, the, the interesting thing is that Jack Quinn would not pay Brett Hull after he had a great year. He scored 40-some goals that That's first right. year. And I think that was the best thing that maybe happened to Brett because Brett was going to – he was – he had, was going to stick it up someone's butt right there because he said, okay, you're not giving this. You're going to sign me to this. And that's when Brad went out and scored, what, 72 that year right. and then 86. After he scored 72, then he got that huge contract. And uh, I think it was a lot of incentive for him because he was told no to the contract. And I think that's when we really saw the real Brad Hall, how good he was, how quickly he shot the puck. I mean, the year he scored 86, he should have broken the NHL record there because he never on the ice for, for any of the empty net goals, never scored an empty net goal that year. That's so right. I think he would hold the record right now if it wasn't for, for that. How tough was it for you not to finish in St. Louis? And I, I don't want to give away things in the book, but you and Brian Sutter were the best of friends. Brian becomes a coach, gives you the C. All of a sudden, there's a little consternation there, um, and I think the book will detail that. I've seen yeah, some of does, the experts. It yeah, it does. And I don't want to give that away, but in a general sense, um, just how tough was it because you were, and, and still are, St. Louis Blues hockey. So, you know, not to finish up here, how tough was that for you and your family? It was tough because, I mean, when you come here, I was drafted by the Blues after 13 years. I, I felt that I had proven from what I've done, that I should be able to stay here for my own career. I mean, especially in the old days because there was, I mean, there was no free agency. There was none of the, any of those stuff. So, I mean, I thought for the first time in my life that I was going to be very comfortable getting a, all I wanted was a one year and an option, two more years, and I was going to retire. And when I got the shocking news from Ron Cron that I was no longer in the plans, I was devastated. So it was very difficult. Uh, I, Would you have I, played longer if he stayed in St. Louis? Or were I, you done? I, I doubt it. I doubt it. Yeah. Uh, it, it you know, it would have been a matter of circumstance. Who knows? If they were a really good team and I was, if they had a place for me, I don't know. Uh, but going to, to Detroit was, was a very, very difficult situation. It was, it was, after it happened, it was okay because Jacques Demers was the one that wanted me. Jacques Demers thought he was going to be the new general manager the following year in Detroit. 
He not only made the trade to get me to play, but he told me he wanted me part of his his uh, management team when he became GM in Detroit. So there was factors in there that may have played out differently if Jacques wouldn't have got fired at the end of the year and sure. you know moved on. So, uh, but it was tough. I mean, Jacques wanted me to be very vocal, like he was here, uh, well, like I was in the locker room here. And and in hindsight, that was a bad idea. I should have not said a word. I was going to a new team with new teammates. I should have just shut up and not said anything <laughs> the whole time, really, because you have to earn your place to, to be able to talk. But I was listening to what Jacques wanted. Jacques, Boris Salmi was in the same situation. He wanted us to kind of mentor the younger players because sure. it was a young team. And uh, looking back, probably shouldn't have done it, but it was a long year. It was a tough year. Um, we didn't make the playoffs that year, so uh, uh, it was. It was kind of devastating, and it was only fitting that at the end of the year when Jacques ended up uh, re- uh, getting fired and Jimmy Davilano, the GM of the Red Wings, called me in and said that I was no longer in their plans. I just felt it was easier for me to, instead of move the family one more time as I had done, it was just time to just pack it in. I probably wasn't going to play for one more year, so I just packed it in. You know, Bernie, you're one of the most, uh, I-, I would say, I, I don't, I'm trying to phrase it properly, but you're extremely intelligent when it comes to many things, don't get me wrong, but evaluating hockey talent. Did it bother you that you, your career path after hockey did not take you down a GM role, scouting role? I'm sure you had offers to do many of these things, but it went into the media. D- does that bother you at all? And as you watch the game now, how do you evaluate the game? You know, I, I, I think, to be honest with you, I, I think that somebody missed out on not having me in management. I agree. Yes, I mean, I, I, I really do believe that. I mean, I, I think I would have been a really good general manager. Um, I, I did try to become general manager here. Uh, I, what I year was that? Uh, it was the year that Larry Plow became general manager. Okay. Hired, Mark Sauer hired Larry Plow. So, I mean, I knew I didn't have any experience. I, you know, done my experience was really just with the roller hockey vipers and, uh, but I knew hockey, and I had still had lots of friends in hockey. So, yeah, I mean, I would have loved to have, have been in that role as a general manager or even as started as an assistant and then, and then moved into the front office. But, um, you know, I never did want to coach. Uh, I, you know, in my days on the ice, I was through with done. them. I was done. I didn't want to lace them up and, and go back on the ice every day and, and continue to travel with the team and this and that. But I would have loved to have been the general manager. But as it turned out, Danny, it really, I love doing what I've done. I mean, you and I got to – Spent a lot of time uh, doing the games in the early days when, when you and I were traveling. Uh, when I first started doing radio, um, it, it's been a it's been a really fun ride, and uh, I still like to watch the kids. I still want I like to evaluate. I like to evaluate the team. I try to be very honest on the air. I try to be uh, uh, very precise in, in what not only the Blues are trying to do, but what my thoughts are are too. So uh, I'm a huge Blues fan, obviously. Uh, and I'd like to see this team win a Stanley Cup like everybody else does. But uh, uh, it's, it's uh, you know, I, I try to be uh, very subjective when, when, I, when I commentate. And I, I like to be very subjective when it comes to how the players are playing. Because I understand a lot of times there's a, reason, there's a lot of reasons for mistakes made at certain right. times. So, yeah, yeah so I, I try to be very honest with that. Hey, St. Louis, Dan McLaughlin here. Big things are happening at Schnucks, especially in October. This month, you'll start to see Schnucks stores popping up all over the city. Living in St. Louis, you know Schnucks is committed to the communities they serve. Now, there will be 19 new Schnucks stores in neighborhoods all around town. You'll also notice that prices are falling, and your points will be piling up with the Schnucks Rewards app. So check out a new store near you. Come say hello. Visit schnucks.com for the full list of new stores. See you at Schnucks. I I think one of the great... Great days I ever had um, in doing this job was going to Toronto and seeing you 
inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. But tonight I'll never forget. It was awesome. Um, just that moment when, first of all, did you ever think it was going to come? After the numbers you had put up with other guys that were in, your numbers were better. Now, playing in St. Louis and playing for the Blues, never won a Stanley Cup. The Blues were always talked about moving. So, I mean, you weren't in the forefront of New York, Chicago, some of the other major markets in Canada, but yet you're one of the great players all time in the history of the National Hockey League. You finally get the call. What did it mean to you? What did it mean to your family? And was it a, a culmination of, for instance, I'm going around about here, but when a guy gets called up in baseball or hockey, it's about their parents, it's about the player, it's about their friends, their neighbors, their family, their brother, their sister. Was that what it was for you when you went into the Hall of Fame? Yeah, it was, it was really a fulfillment of a, of a career that I felt that I'd given everything to my career and I'd given everything to what I tried to accomplish and my entire family had given the whole thing, whether it was my mom and dad and my friends and my brothers and I think it showed Danny when we were there together and it was unbelievable. 20 people. That's right. Uh, it's the largest uh, um, you know, group that has ever come to uh, watch an induction. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, there was it was it was a, a, such a I guess maybe a, a relief because I, I really felt that I had put up the numbers, but I had done more than just put up the numbers. I had I had sacrificed an awful lot to do the things that I had done in my career. But again, that's not up to me, and I've always said that is that uh, it's a, such a fine line. Uh, it's a it's a committee that decides it. Yeah, there's 18 people on the committee. You have to get 14 of those 18 votes. They never tell you how they vote. They never tell you how many you got. But if you got more than 14, you're in. So um, the longer it went, uh, I guess I probably was thinking that it wasn't going to happen. And when I did get the call, I guess it was one of shock and one of relief because uh, it was it was very very much overwhelming. Who called you? Uh, Jim uh, Jimmy Gregory called me. He, he had. Uh, and Emil Francis was big behind the scenes. Emil Francis was very big, big behind the scenes. He was on the committee there, and uh, I know that he was a booster. I mean, I know that every time he talked to my dad, he called my dad, he said, your son deserves to be in there. He's going to get there, so don't you lose faith, Nick. And, and Dad never did lose faith. And, um, but, uh, yeah, it was Jimmy Gregory called me. I was up in the golf course doing a shop, show for Fox, and my phone <laughs> kept ringing, and I finally answered when we were finished, and... I thought when uh, Kelly Massey called, she said, Jim Gregory wants to talk to you, and I, okay. And wow. I had, this was in June, I didn't expect, they, they used to do, I mean, that was the first year that they ever. Used to wait until. September, it was always right. done in September, so this was the first time they ever did it in June, and I was not aware of that, obviously. And when Jim Gregory said, you obviously know why I'm calling, I said, Jimmy, I have no idea, to be honest with you. And he says, you're kidding me? I said, No. I was I was expecting because I was doing TV work then. I thought they were maybe wanting me to do something for the Hall of Fame, whatever it would be. And when he told me, I I, I was, I mean, Steve Sebastian was the golf pro out of Wing Haven, and I was so flabbergasted. And he looked at me. I mean, I was. He thought something was wrong. He thought someone had died or something sure. because uh, I was totally flabbergasted. So really, Steve Sebastian was the first guy that knew that I was going to be inducted in the Hall of Fame. And your first call after that was to Bernadette, yeah, and then my and then my folks, yeah. awesome, yeah. So yeah, what was, was the reaction of mom and dad? Uh, all of them. I mean, it was hollering and screaming by everybody. You know, it was totally emotional. I mean, my mom, my mom, my mom and dad were pretty low key people, so it was it was very emotional for them. But they're not these cartwheel type people, so they were just like very proud. 
It was a very proud moment for them. Uh, my wife, you know her very well. She was ecstatic. And then she called the kids, and, of course, they were ecstatic. So, I mean, I was finishing my – I still had – I had to finish the, the golf show, so I had to do a <laughs> – I had to do a – You had to finish uh, it no, I, I had a press conference that I had to do, a telephone uh, conference call with the Hall of Fame and with Clark Gillies and Rod Langway. So we were all on the call, Roger Nielsen. And after that, I had to actually finish the, the, the segment for the golf show and then we had a bo- couple of bottles of champagne that Steve had brought out. Awesome. And then uh, I was off uh, to home, and then we were just started a lot of partying for the rest of that day. When you look back at your life, and we're going to wrap it up here, do you, do you sit there and think, how did this happen to me? You know, this kid from Canada winds up being a, an NHL player, which is the dream of every kid that grows up in Canada, and then to play on Hockey Night in Canada and to play in the NHL. And then all of a sudden, you become a staple of this city. You're, you're a fixture in this town. You're among the greats. You're Stan the Man. There's Bernie Federko. There's Al McKinnis. There's Brock and Gibson. You're in that group. Does that ever resonate with you? Well, you ever thanks, think about Danny. it? You know, no, you know what? I, I, it's I, true, Bernie. I, I, I really, I, I, I'm the most fortunate person around. I mean, I, think, I, I pinch myself every morning. I, I thank Lucky Star every morning because uh, I've, been, I've been blessed. I mean, that's the way I, I look it. at it. I, I, I've been very, very blessed, and I can't believe, uh, and just, I have a book now. I can't believe that either. I mean, my story of my life, I, which I think is pretty simple, pretty normal, but it's the story of my life. And, uh, yes, everything that I have, I owe to the game of hockey and this great city here that I was able to come to. So, um, you know, uh, God has blessed me. There's no question about it. But to be able to be back here in St. Louis, we made the right decision coming back. Uh, even now, uh, I feel very fortunate that uh, I have great friends here in the city. Uh, well, you being which one? I'm, I'm, I'm just so happy that I have friends like you, Danny, and, and I have a job with the organization that I still am hoping that I can help them win a Stanley Cup and, and whatever I can do in whatever capacity. So it's, it's, I've been blessed, and uh, every day I, I, I'm very thankful. What would you do if the Blues won the Cup? I would have... I, I have never touched the Stanley Cup. I've taken numerous pictures. Never. I've taken numerous pictures with it uh, through the Hall of Fame. Uh, when I had my restaurant downtown, uh, they brought the cup oh, in yeah. one day before the start of the year. I took pictures in front of it, but I have not touched it. Uh, that'll afford, afford the luxury of touching it. I'm hoping that that comes real soon. That I actually feel I feel I, because of my ties to the Blues. I feel that I will, even though that I really believe that only the guys that have played for it those are the guys that can touch it because they earn it and i'm never going to be able to do that but i will feel that oh you're a big part of it though. that i feel that i, I that, that what i've done for the you know th- to keep hockey alive here and, and no to question build, that i will be able to touch it and it will be a a great party it'll probably be the party of the century and it may last more than five or six days Dan. oh it'll be about three months oh yeah i four think so months. too and, I, and i'll be in the middle of that party for the whole time <laughs> <laughs> um a couple more questions and then this is it we'll let you go what do you hope people get out of the book? That's a really good question. I mean, I just, it's, I just tried to be honest about what my life has been all about. I mean, I, it's, it's really an autobiography. What is an autobiography? It's the story of your life, and that's basically what it is. I mean, I want people to know what I, what I started with, how I got to be where I am, and, and all the people that helped me and hurt me along the way, if you want to even call it that sure. way. So it's, it's really just an honest story of parts of my life that I wanted to share with other people. What are you most proud of in the book? 
you know what? I'm probably most proud of, of, of the very beginning uh, of the book where I the dedicated to my, my three sons. Um, because I would have never thought that I would ever be able to write a book or, um, or teach them the things that, uh, that they know about me um, because of the game that I played, because of the people I know, the friends that I know. So uh, I think that's probably the thing I'm most proud of is that I've been able to come from a, a little town to a big city and that I don't think I've ever changed my ways. I, I think that I'm the same person I was when I started, I, I think the, the, what my folks raised me to be, I think I'm still that, and I think that's what I'm most proud of. These fans love you, and they love you forever. Well, Thanks, Bernie. Thank you. I love them, too. <laughs>